Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up free or paid for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We're just starting year two, and I've got big plans to cover men's and women's World Cups in the next 12 months. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham to talk about the weekend. How are you, Chris? I have not returned from traveling to watch the U.S. men's national team put in two insipid performances in Europe. (laughs) How did you experience that? I am running on fumes, my friend. It is 7.40 p.m. on Sunday night. My body feels like it's after midnight Europe time. (laughs) And I... I have good intentions. I came back, even though I'm going back to London on Tuesday night for the U.S. women's game against England, which I'm very excited about. I'm very thankful to be going to Europe for all of these U.S. games, men's and women's. I, My good intentions, I guess you could say, where I wanted to spend a few days with my wife uh, over the weekend. So we've done that, which is great. Um, I'm traveling a lot, but, um, you know, it's... Uh, a long flight back on Saturday. Uh, I had a nice interview with Eunice Musa on Friday for an upcoming story uh, on him for grantwall.com. Uh, just an amazing kid, by the way. Holy cow. Oh, my God. Man, did uh, you must miss him. <laughs> uh, and they really did. Um, and, you know, like, look, it was a it was a bummer of two games for the U.S., obviously, uh, the 2-0 loss to Japan, followed by the 0-0 against Saudi Arabia. And you have to hope, if you're a U.S. fan, that things get better for the World Cup. And that's going to require a few things, including some guys with injuries like Musa coming back, but also uh, players just doing better and, and getting into better form at club level. You know, And that could be Christian Pulisic, Weston McKenney. Um, several guys and Pulisic didn't get that much time for Chelsea over the weekend, but he did get an assist on the game winning goal. Um, Weston McKenney got an assist, a nice one, uh, for Juventus. They ended up winning. So we'll see how that all goes, but like, it's a weird time for the U S men's national team ahead of this world cup, because I literally, this is part of the headline on my main story after the Saudi Arabia game. I felt like in two games the u.s went from a team that we sort of expected to advance from their group to a team now where there's a genuine doubt that that will happen it's kind of remarkable how quickly that house of cards fell over because i think a lot of fans and i'll I'll sort of do this through the prism of the manager because i think he has come in for a lot of criticism over the course of the last two weeks uh greg berhalter he came into this national team greeted by a lot of skepticism there's a lot of views that it was a nepotism hire on the basis of the fact that uh his brother was in the u.s soccer organization when he got hired and so he did not come in with sort of the fans ready to get on side then they lost the gold cup final to mexico and a subsequent friendly to mexico and did so while getting blitzed off the park by playing quote his system and it was a difficult run for him then as a result of covid they sort of don't really play a ton of meaningful games so you go straight into qualifying and i thought berhalter sort of did enough to at very least sort of have the critics at bay it wasn't perfect qualifying they were pretty bad on the road but they got the job done they healed the trauma of not qualifying for the world cup and all of a sudden in two games it is completely gone to dial the pressure up to Burhalter. He prioritizes his system over players. He is not picking players in the best interest of the U.S. men's national team. His system doesn't work. And everything that the U.S. have built over the last three-plus years is completely flushed down the toilet, and the U.S. look terrible going into this World Cup. And I, I sort of understand it because the U.S. look terrible over the course of these two games. They don't have another game before the opener against Wales. They have very obvious weaknesses where they don't have certain players in the team. They have not looked good on the road. However, these were two friendlies, friendlies against, you know, a decent opposition, but in in closed-door environments without any intensity when a lot of players would be thinking, I don't want to get hurt here, first and foremost, and some players did, and I just sort of think it's weird that I know you want to go into the World Cup with momentum, but at the same time, I thought it was weird, the volume on just how much people overreacted to what happened, and I'll acknowledge that it was bad, and I'll acknowledge that 
there are a lot of things that concern me heading into that opening game against Wales. But I, I, I almost sort of wonder if these friendlies will be looked back upon as sort of a, a blip on the radar and the U.S. will be very competitive in the World Cup. Even if they don't qualify to their group, they'll look much better than they did in these two games because of the very unique nature of them. A couple things I'd say to that. First thing I said on CBS HQ in my immediate post-game discussion right after the final whistle was nobody will ever remember this game against Saudi Arabia. Literally nobody will. Nobody cares in the big picture about, you know, historically what happened in this game against Saudi Arabia and everything is about the World Cup itself and what happens in those games. So I think that's important to remember. This isn't my first rodeo. I've been covering World Cups going back to 1998 and I realize what particular games mean and what particular games don't mean. So I get that. But I think there's also two very specific areas that are really concerning at this point in terms of Greg Berhalter's decision-making and preferences. And one of those is a goalkeeper where I, I, I do feel like Matt Turner is the obvious choice at this point ahead of Zach Steffen. And yet basically everyone who follows this team closely realizes that Burhalter leans towards Stefan if he's healthy. And we're fully expecting that Zach Stefan will start at the World Cup ahead of Matt Turner. And we all are sort of like, that's ridiculous. That's kind of stupid. And that's just where we're headed. We know that's where we're going. Um, and that is what it is, but it's kind of crazy. And then also it's it, it center forward. Um, the fact that Jordan Pifak is sort of the obvious choice to at least be on the team, probably to start, but at least be on the team, given what he's doing. And yet he can't get on the team at all, even a 26-man roster. And other guys are in one of the most important positions on the field. And we all know that's where we're headed here. And so you can go into all of these discussions about, oh, Burhalter knows what he's going to get from PFOC. That's why he wasn't called in. I actually don't think that's it at all. I think it's that Greg Burhalter doesn't rate PFOC and he's not going to be on the team at all. And so those two positions, I think, sort of crystallize the, I don't know, dissatisfaction at this point with what seems to be pretty obvious to most of us, but doesn't seem to be to Greg Berhalter. And there's other positions on the field we could discuss, but those more than others. And I think, for me, the thing that really frustrates the fan base is that it seems to be personal preference, and I think it's encapsulated in a quote in which Greg Berhalter said, we want Ricardo Pepe to do what he does. It doesn't matter if he scores five goals. And he, like we want him to play his role within the system. And it really sort of crystallized in this window that the system is more important when I think... You look at, for example, the, uh, this is a very small example, but Johnny Cardoso being picked in holding midfield uh, rather than someone like Eric Williamson coming through when he's played well for Portland Timbers. Johnny Cardoso was picked into the uh, pre-Olympic team. He was not very good in that qualifying tournament two years ago uh, that, was, that, that failed to qualify for the Olympics. And it seemed to me like a lot of the decisions from that team were influenced by what Greg Berhalter wanted. And it was his system that was out to be implemented. And then it didn't work at an international tournament. And yet he just seems to have personal preferences for players. And he is certainly not the first international manager to do that. I will defend certain international managers wanting to pick certain players that fit systemically into a broader picture over others just because of how... I, I think particular international football is. But at the same time, when you see Jordan Pifak, for one, top of the Bundesliga and scoring goals for the team that's top of the Bundesliga, you're sort of left wondering, well, if this, if the whole thing is we need to get the striker who couldn't crack it at the bottom of the Bundesliga and is on loan in Holland right now in order to fit our system, then why, why is the system so tailored to that? And what is missing about this system that didn't look good in these two games? And picking defenders that can't play out from the back. And the goalkeeper can't play out from the back. And your holding midfielder probably can't play out from the back very much. Why are we still playing out? From, like, there's things that aren't connecting. And you would have figured that four years in, it would be. And I also think as well that if you're kind of being concerned about the manager and the system now... What about in four years' time when you're hosting the World Cup? Is Greg Berhalter going to be around for all that? And I know that his performance in this World Cup will be 
you know, will go a long way in determining that. But you sort of wonder how committed U.S. soccer is as a whole to his project. And also the whole philosophy. I thought Eric Winalda had very interesting quotes about, you know, picking you know, teams for a system or coaching up players or international, when you're an international coach and you don't really do that. So uh, th- there's there's a lot going on there around Greg Berhalter, and that was dialed up to 11 as a result of these two friendlies. No, I agree. And I, I got to admit, it's interesting to me that Greg Berhalter has actually, over the course of his tenure, been more detail-oriented in his responses. And I think the media appreciates that. Um, to questions when asked about tactical stuff or, or things like that. He started to retreat away from that, though, as the pressure has, has gone up. I literally asked him toward the start of a roundtable in Cologne, Germany, uh, the question, uh, how would you describe your system? Because that, we're hearing a lot about your system. Like, what is it? Can you like give us a concise description of it? And his response was to not answer the question. He actually said, oh, that's something we dealt with two or three years ago in next question. And I was really disappointed with that answer, to be honest, because that's something that he has to know is being discussed a lot these days among the people who follow this team. And so to sort of retreat into his shell, I thought... uh, that could have been a much better response. Yeah, and there were other things that that uh, he sort of stepped in it, and I think the fan base is sort of ready for him to step in it at this point. And there are a lot of questions, and some of those might get solved by players getting healthy, but in some ways, for me, that's disappointing. It's disappointing that you can't figure out a way to reshape your team when you have to pick Sam Vines at left back or pick Aaron Long at center back instead of either Chris Richards or Miles Robinson or, you know, without Timothy Weah, figure out a way to get the ball in behind and, and create space vertically as much as horizontally with the ball and struggle in possession. and str- Like, yeah, in theory, Yunus Musa could solve a lot of the problems in central midfield, but... It's kind of alarming when you need a player to do that and not your system and your coaching to be able to do that. Well, the fact that a 19-year-old midfielder has suddenly become indispensable and, you know, Yunus Musa right now is viewed as this savior for this team, which may be expecting too much from him. I do give Berhalter credit for recognizing very early on with Yunus Musa that he should be playing centrally, which is something that only now has been recognized at club level with uh, Valencia and Reno Gattuso as coach. So give Berhalter credit on that, but I, I don't think this idea that uh, that Musa is this person to to rescue the U.S. team, it, I think that's putting a lot of pressure on him. So we'll we'll see how it all shakes out. There's a lot of other factors involved here. I think Weston McKenney is a guy who clearly dials it up for big games, like when he's playing Mexico, doesn't so much in friendly games, and that's not ideal but it's also part of the the deal with with Weston McKenney. and so do I think Weston McKenney will show up for the Wales game I do uh and I don't think Wales is that great by the way but you know at the same time uh, people want to see this U.S. team perform well and they certainly didn't in these two games and that's changed the expectations now in the view of this team heading into the World Cup we'll see if they respond um, but the one play- thing, though, you, you mentioned yeah, Wales. You mentioned Wales, though. The the one thing, yeah. I mean, maybe they're not great, but they know who they are, and that's the thing that for me is the biggest concern with the U.S. Is I don't think they know who they are. If you like, like you said, identify the system. Describe what the U.S. men's national team's system is. How are they trying to beat their opponent? I can't identify that right now, and. I, even, for example, you know, when they won in Orlando against Panama, they didn't have the majority of possession in that game. They actually were somewhat transitional. They were just sort of taking advantage of positive moments, and they did really well to do so. They hammered Panama on the day. Um, or was that Costa Rica? I don't remember. Uh, it was uh, Panama 5-1, so I'm not right. complaining too much about 5-1 wins. Agreed, agreed. But what I'm saying is that they went. Ab- I think they went about it differently than how Greg Berhalter would ideally like his team to break down opponents. And so, and, and also, you're going into a game, I think I think Iran is going to be a massive game in the World Cup group stage. They're managed now by Carlos Quiroz, the most kind of uh, obstinate manager, I will call it, uh, in, in international football. He puts 10 players behind the ball and dares you to break him down and will nick a goal on the counter. And he did it to Uruguay during this international trans- or during this international window. And the U.S. is going to have to figure out a way to break that down. 
I, I don't have any confidence in the U.S. being able to break down a low block. I, I don't know who I would fancy the U.S. to beat unless they're playing a team in Ohio right now. Like, that, that's, <laughs> that's how kind of grim I feel about them at the moment. And that's not how you want to feel going into the World Cup. So that's why I understand the hyperbole coming out of it. But I also wonder if I'm being reactionary and I'm overreacting to everything that I've seen. And maybe the U.S. has a very detailed plan and we saw none of it uh, during this camp because it's all about uh, amping up for Wales, England, and Iran at the World Cup. I think they should move the hosting rights of World Cup 26 to Ohio, just the state of Ohio. (laughs) That U.S. soccer should push for this because they seem to like only playing games in Columbus and Cincinnati. Yeah, bring back old Crew Stadium. Uh, maybe you have you have TQL, you have Lower.com, you have the Horseshoe. You can play at maybe the Cincinnati Bengals Stadium. I'm trying to come up with, is there any other? Uh, I guess maybe like the the Great American Ballpark. You can you can play games in. I don't. know, We can figure this out. It's probably bigger than Qatar, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm certain it's bigger than Qatar. <laughs> World Cup 26 in Ohio, everybody. I can get behind that. Uh, let's talk about the club game because there w- there was a furious return to play this weekend. The month of October is going to be crazy, by the way, as the world tries to get a bunch of club things done ahead of the World Cup, including like every match day of Champions League, MLS Cup, NWSL Final, all of that stuff. Man City 6, Man United 3 wasn't as close as the score would indicate, Hat-tricks by Erling Haaland, his third already this season, and (laughs) Phil Foden. No Cristiano Ronaldo, who Eric Ten Hag said he didn't play because he respected him (laughs) and his career. Make make one of that that what you will. Um, But, like, my question coming out of this, Witty, is... How is Man City not leading the league? I don't get this. It's it's crazy. If, and, and you know what's honestly for me the bigger question is how is the only game that Erling Haaland didn't score in for Man City in the Premier League this season home against Bournemouth? <laughs> of all teams to have not beaten home or to have not scored against home against Bournemouth. How is that even possible? Um, to, to answer your question though about how, how are they not top of the league is you, I, I do think that they have some defensive vulnerabilities and they did concede three goals in the game albeit right. uh, two of them in garbage time um but they also are dealing with injuries as well right now they had another one today in kyle walker coming off uh, a lot of their top level central defenders if i had said to you before the start of the season the manchester derby is gonna have manuel akanji and nathan ake as the center back partnership you'd be like wait what what happened so they are dealing with a few injuries defensively but it's almost terrifying it's almost frightening that kevin de bruyne and erling Haaland are developing a chemistry and that's the thing that is most scary going forward is that in particular that third goal that's exactly the, the that pocket and sort of the wide right area de bruyne likes to start in the middle and work out to those outside areas and if and that that pullback zone has been on for a striker for manchester city for so many years and Aguero's injury and Jesus not really quite finding his form there allowed for a lot of those passes to just go flying through the air and go, oh man if only someone was on the back post but Erling Haaland that's all he thinks about running off the shoulder of the defender timing his run perfectly using his insane athleticism that I think is I mean there's so many things about Erling Haaland that make him a remarkable player but his leaping ability his first step his sprint speed everything about his athleticism is extraordinary and he's just looking to find the end of those De Bruyne uh, services into the penalty area what a performance from Manchester City and it just for me it goes to show how much further Manchester United have to go they won four games before the international break and they're playing really well but those were not exactly you know as a result of Eric Ten Hag implementing his principles there were sort of very pragmatic choices that he made to go and win games to try and stabilize a club that was in crisis and I think this game against Man City showed that when they don't, when they only have 25% of the ball, they're not going to be able to limit Manchester City. The way that Erling Haaland is able to launch his body at balls, whether it's they're on the ground like today from Kevin De Bruyne, or that one where he got his feet above his head and did yeah. the karate kick goal in Champions League, like 
that's an ability that I just don't think anybody else has in the world at this point. And it is a athleticism in its highest form, but there's something more to it. it. It's like an ability to see in advance what De Bruyne is doing and anticipate it to put your body in the position to be able to do something like that. Like the, the comparison I made today and in, in what I wrote about this was it's like as if Andre the Giant was an elite tap dancer or, you know, <laughs> because it's, it is completely incompatible you would think with the body type that Holland has. And yet somehow he's able to do this and it just leaves you, I don't know, like, aghast like it's jaw-dropping that he is able to do this on a regular basis and so he's had three hat tricks now in eight premier league games and what was the stat like how many games it took ronaldo to get to three hat tricks which he's currently at by the way in his premier league career <laughs> i saw it, i saw that crazy. so in terms of yeah erling klein becomes the first player in premier league history to score a hat trick in three successive Premier League home games, quickest to three, this is courtesy of Sky Sports, eight appearances to three Premier League hat-tricks. Next fastest was Michael Owen with 48 appearances, Ruud van Nistelrooy with 59, Fernando Torres with 64, and uh, uh, Andy Cole with 65. So he's he got to three hat-tricks 40 games quicker than the next quickest player in Premier League history. And, you know, the Premier League is sort of viewed as a league where it's not as easy to score goals in this league as it is in the Bundesliga or in France or in other leagues. And Holland is putting up those kinds of numbers in the Premier League. You're, you, and you sort of ask yourself right now, right now, Grant, where do you think there's 30 games left in the season? He has 14 goals. What's plausible? 35, 40, 45 goals? What's plausible for, like, I think... He will probably average a goal per game for the rest of the season, which would put him at 44, which is astounding for this league. Players don't come into this league and do that. He's made it look easy. Here is my goal, is that at some point in the next five years, he takes a gap year and plays in Holland, in the Netherlands, and we can call it Holland in Holland, just to see <laughs> how many goals in one season that Erling Holland could score in the no-defense Dutch league. I would guess 150 Something like that. Maybe? That sounds about. That sounds right to me. If you if you dropped him in the Ajax team, I think it would it would just be it would be ridiculous. It would be absurd to, to, to put him in that league. And you just sort of you just sort of wonder. So we're eight games in, right? And we're already doing the man. How how are they going to stop him? Running out of description, running out of hyperbole for this player. He's eight games in. What what are we going to be saying about him in in two years? Can be like this is this is absurd. And I saw that in terms of. Goals before age 22, he's way above Messi and Ronaldo. And I, I mean, I guess, you know, this is probably advancing the conversation too much, but where is he right now in your best players in the world? Yeah, it's a good question of when, like, form, like somebody who's in form becomes actually, like, this guy's the best in the world. And he's not far from it. Lewandowski continues to score goals, by the way. Uh, and just sort of just does it and does it and does it, and he's been doing it for more years, and so I think that's totally deserving of continued respect. But the numbers that Holland is putting up are so outrageous at this point that he's now in a position where he has teammates who are very special, like De Bruyne, like other teammates he's got there at Man City, that uh, the conditions are there if he stays healthy, that he could just have a a season unlike anything we've ever seen before. He's on pace to do that. And I kind of want to see where he can go. But I go back to my original question about how, how is City not in you know, top of the league? How did this City team drop points against Newcastle United? How did this City team drop points against Aston Villa? Because right now, I feel like, and we'll get to Arsenal in a second, which is top of the league in one three to one in the North London Derby this weekend. Like, I feel like if Arsenal met Man City right now, that City would destroy them, absolutely destroy them. And yet, I don't know what happens to City in some of these other games versus other teams in the league that causes them trouble. Well, they have this remarkable cutting edge that they, they go forward and they score tons of goals. They have nine more goals than any other team in the league, but. In that Newcastle game, again, they gave away three goals. 
in in the Aston Villa game, I actually think it was more of an inability to convert chances, which is funny considering that they have Erling Haaland, that they had that issue in that Villa match. But yeah, I, I, I do think that as much as it's working in Holland's orbit, there are other elements of the team that are not perfect, that are still being worked on. And I do think at times Arsenal have shown a bit more balance over the course of the season, but it is very early. I think if you asked any observer of this league, wh- where does Man City sit? They sit head and shoulders above the rest, despite not even, they don't even have to sit top of the table in order to sit head and shoulders above the rest because you just watch the games and go, I mean, today there were moments where even Jack Grealish, who's taken a ton of criticism for his first year and two months in Man City, was just running beyond fullbacks and playing direct and playing like the Jack Grealish that we saw at Aston Villa or multiple yellow cards of Manchester United players. And was I thought he put in a tremendous performance. So uh, you just see elements of this team coming together. It really is just about... Are they going to keep getting beat in behind with those counterattacking passes? Are they going to be able to put away their chances when Erling Haaland is not firing? Those are really the only questions at this point. But given how poorly Liverpool have started the season, we can get to them later. I, I do think that Man City are really the only candidate to win the league this year. I think they're going to win it by double-digit points. I'm with you on that, but let's talk about Arsenal because they won again this weekend at home. The schedule has been favorable. That even their tough games against like Spurs today were, or yesterday were at home. But good performances, you know. I felt like Arsenal deserved to win that game, and it's a side thing, by the way, that Martin Odegaard captaining Arsenal that somehow Norway with Odegaard and. Erling Holland is not in the World Cup. Like, who's the coach of that team? And and well, they, can... they have issues at, at FA level because isn't isn't their women's team also a bit of a basket case? Yeah, disaster. Um, but like, it's crazy to me that Norway is not one of like the teams at the World Cup this year, and and, and a bummer, by the way. But anyway, uh, Arsenal looking good, and Gabriel Jesus scores again. Granit Xhaka playing extremely well. William Saliba looks like he might be the best defender in the Premier League. Am I am I overstating that? Uh, maybe, but I also don't have an, a, an obvious counter. Uh, Virgil van Dijk would have had that distinction, but he's been terrible this season. So uh, I don't think there's a City defender that earns that. I think Spurs' defensive unit probably covers that hole. Chelsea have been... Le- I'm just sort of looking at the league table. Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with you. I mean, there are moments where William Saliba just demonstrates this enormous class on the ball and defensively. He's been sensational. It's kind of remarkable that Arsenal loaned him out last year, and he was, I believe, the league-owned defender of the year. (laughs) And it's like, wait, you couldn't have used him last year? Maybe they'd be in the Champions League this year if they just kept him. I will say that like, my sit-down interview with Matt Turner last week got me thinking more and more about Arsenal and what it's like inside that team. And Turner's such a good dude, by the way. My goodness. Um, And I'm happy for him because he's getting... uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, a first-hand viewpoint of, of what's happening and what so far is a very special season for Arsenal, and he's going to get his chances to play in Europa League and in cup games, it sounds like. Um, but the Arsenal, even though I think their schedule has been extremely favorable so far, and we'll see if they can keep this up, um, the performances have been very good. And I, I think Mikel Arteta deserves a lot of credit for that. I think the players deserve a lot of credit for that. They're just a fun team to watch again. I also think that the club deserves credit for that because as much as we can criticize their ownership uh, under Stan Kroenke, they have spent a ton of money in this rebuild project. And they also are one of the few teams that had the conviction to stay through a longer-term vision and idea. They picked a manager who had never managed a full senior game before. I guess he had managed one, I believe, an interim uh, for Pep Guardiola, who stepped away. But they picked an inexperienced coach, and they were embarking on trying to completely regenerate the idea of Arsenal. They had a lot of veteran players, including one of which they got one of the contracts in which they gave out uh, to Mesut Ozil, Alexis Sanchez, and to uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. That hamstrung them from a from a wage standpoint they couldn't sort of rebuild the team they managed to get off all those players they had a few veterans that didn't really cut it to be in a champions league team and they had some who they rebuilt uh so i do think that uh the way that arsenal have rebuilt this team is really impressive and they stuck they stuck with this project so 
I, I do think that they deserve credit. But yeah, the the way that they played in the Spurs game, it changed a lot with a red card, but it didn't change entirely because of the red card. I thought Arsenal were well on their way to winning even before that red card came on Emerson Royale. They're really impressive going forward. And I think they exposed a lot of Spurs' issues in being able to keep any semblance of possession on having any desire to go forward against opposition in big games. And sometimes that way of playing can work for Spurs. And it did in getting a late equalizer against Chelsea, but it didn't on this day because Arsenal overwhelmed them. And Thomas Partey scored a sensational goal to open the scoring for Arsenal. And then they followed it up with more great stuff. Hugo Lloris probably had fall for the second, but... I thought Arsenal were just sensational on the day. And I do think that the way that they've turned it around is super impressive. I'd be stunned if they don't make the Champions League this year. And I sort of believe, I believe in a level of performance from this team week in, week out, when I think a lot of the narrative before now was, how are they going to screw this up? How is Arsenal going to Arsenal? And they're sort of removing the verb nature of their team, which is really, to Arsenal is no longer what it used to be, or at least... It, it's not for the moment. I would say I am still leaning towards Spurs as the second best team in the Premier League, despite what happened this weekend. But I'm a little, I'm questioning it a little bit um, just due to the fact that they grind out so much, even when they win. But I don't see Liverpool being anywhere close to the Liverpool team we've seen in recent years. Uh, I don't know if Arsenal will be that good once the schedule gets tough again. Because uh, it really hasn't gotten that tough. I don't think Man United's very good. Uh, they spent a lot of money, but they've been blown out multiple times this season already. Um, I look at Chelsea, and I feel like that's a, a work in progress uh, under a new coach. Um, and, and so, I just think City's gonna. Yeah, I think City's gonna roll uh, in the end here. And uh, who knows? Who will end up? I, I do feel like Arsenal will be in the top four, though. It, I, I just don't think they are a legitimate title contender. And maybe that makes me a jerk. I don't know. Um, I do want to bring up another game Leeds United nil, Aston Villa nil. Um, not a great game, but I think sort of an impressive game that for Leeds in the sense that they were able to get a point. And I realized they were at home, but out of being down a man for almost the entirety of the second half after a dumb second yellow by Sinistera. And it really seemed like Villa should be disappointed that they didn't get three points out of this game. And a, a very impressive performance by Tyler Adams, especially in the second half, to cover as much ground as he did when he was essentially the only defensive midfielder after Mark Roca got taken out. Yeah, I think that the way that Leeds performed in the second half... Uh, after they went down to 10 men was super impressive and spoke a lot to their character. The crowd really got behind them in trying to see out that result, and they were sort of exuberant at full time. I, I do sort of wonder, though, I mean, going into the game, Leeds probably would look at home against Aston Villa and think we should be winning this game. And I, I do, you know, whenever a team goes four games without a win, you develop some level of concern. They had their, I mean, the, the game that was postponed, actually they had two games postponed uh, during uh, what happened with the Queen uh, at Man United at home, Nottingham Forest. Maybe there were some points in there uh, for them. But you, you look at their upcoming schedule, away at Palace, home with Arsenal, um, before at Leicester, which has become an easier fixture, but who knows what that, their situation will be then. I do sort of wonder, all right, Leeds got to get some wins on the board. They're sort of mid-table right now, and maybe being above the relegation zone is enough for them this season. But I still I still think that the way that Leeds are performing, or Leeds performed in this game, was really valiant, was really strong, and the fact they're able to get a point from being down to 10 men for most of the second half really solid yeah they do need to get three points again at some point soon jesse marsh was serving a suspension so it was up in the press box he made that decision for some reason um but did say after the game he was interviewed on sky and complained about what he said were aston villas slow down the game tactics basically called them a Concacaf team without saying it specifically <laughs> and uh it's so funny i love how much jesse marsh winds up English soccer fans. It, like if you go to the QTs on Twitter of this video clip from the Sky Sports tweet, it's basically a bunch of English fans saying like yank wanker. 
Can I say that? <laughs> I mean, it's your podcast, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and also I will say the one thing that I haven't loved about Jesse Marsh is he talks a lot about the referees and he talks a lot about things that happen outside of the game sometimes. Uh, he got, I, I think he was in the press. He got red carded against Brentford last time out, right? Yep. You know, yep. I know that was like a month ago, but uh, yeah. So he, he does seem to talk a lot about things that go on beyond the game. <laughs> Uh, and, and I will say Martinez is Emiliano Martinez, the Aston Villa goalkeeper is known for a lot of this stuff. So I wonder if he sort of went into the game with the idea of, all right, he's going to roll the ball around the six yard area. And I was actually, I was listening to a fair bit of this game on, uh, BBC five live and they were talking, that was sort of the main talking point the entire time that I was listening was the time wasting tactics from both teams. Cause I guess Melier did the same thing. Yes. So, uh, it was, uh, it was a bit back and forth and all this, but uh, for me, um, I, I just wonder if the extracurriculars are a bit too much of a focus with Leeds sometimes. I, I did like that Steven Gerrard was asked about Marsh's comments and said, I don't care about Jesse Marsh's opinion. So <laughs> um, our, our old friend, by the way, previous um, Marsh opponent at the final whistle of game one of the season, Bruno Lodge, happy trails to Bruno Lodge yeah. of Wolves, who will not be around for their game against Leeds United in the cup. I think it's the league cup draw. Um, I'm not going to miss Bruno Lodge, to be honest, but um, very curious to see if after Nuno and Bruno, we might have a, a third Portuguese coming in with a rhyming name. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's a situation for Jesse Marsh where I, I think I mean, you're right. When he's got four games now um, without a win, that you know they need to get some points on the board and you don't want to get in a position where you're going too many games without getting those points so we'll see um i do want to move forward to something that uh you rightly wanted to bring up here which is florentino perez the real madrid real madrid president uh coming out and saying publicly again that he's a big fan of the super league it's coming and he also talked about in some detail the nfl getting uh, a certain number of you know dollars i guess in uh in television rights that european soccer in his opinion wasn't getting i wasn't sure if his facts were completely right but the super league is alive and well if you're florentino perez or barcelona or juventus and you had thoughts yeah and so his main his main backing for his thesis was the forbes valuations for sports teams and that the top 13 teams uh, were NFL or American sports franchise. And he says that American sports are leaving football in the dust and football is sick right now. And his main thesis for why is not because of actual issues that affect fans like, you know, TV subscriptions that make it too expensive to watch the game or, you know, in the, in the eyes of uh, European fans, the exorbitant cost to travel and the exorbitant cost for tickets and a lot of the inconveniences that fans experience. No, to Florentino Perez, it's because Real Madrid have played Liverpool seven times in the last 57 years. And this is a travesty. And this is, you know, we need to engineer the big biggest European clubs pl playing each other. And how does he want to do that? The Super League. The Super League will solve all of these problems. And it just seems, it just seems like sour grapes from a president that probably can't spend the money that he wants to spend because they don't make enough money um, in order to, you know, be um, compliant with the La Liga salary cap. And they're lo no longer the biggest spending team in the world. Those are, you know, the oil-owned uh, clubs in Paris and in Manchester, and I think he he recognizes that La Liga has fallen behind. The Premier League is very much the top league in the world, the biggest financial generator in the world, and he's trying to figure out a way to bring his club back to being the number one club in the world in from a sort of financial, from a resource standpoint. Sort of, I guess, isn't satisfied enough with winning, winning game and winning Champions League and winning European trophies, but he wants to. He thinks he's got to solve for all of that ails football, and that is combining all the big clubs and leaving all the small clubs behind that for, and not having relegation. Because, by the way, if you want to ensure the valuations of football clubs to be number one, don't relegate them from a European Super League, and they'll be worth $10, $10 billion. I can assure you of that because it is a bigger business. It is a bigger sport than American sports are. American sports are niche sports outside of the United States. They just are. So... 
this is by far the biggest sport in the world. It's not falling in relevance or financial weight because of its decline in popularity. It's doing so because of it, the nature of it. Because you have to qualify in order to meet all of your financial incentives. You don't have guaranteed revenue. Therefore, you can't value a club without guaranteed revenue. And so Florentino Perez wants to guarantee revenue, which, by the way, are the ills that a lot of people say Americans want to bring to European football, that we want to get rid of relegation and we want to go over there and change everything so that we can increase valuations because that is ultimately the value in the business that American investment funds, which is the evil word that a pundit like Gary Neville throws out there at every available opportunity, American investment funds, that that's, that's what ails the game without with fa failing to realize that the, that the, the biggest power that want that wants to change this sport is not an american investment fund it's the president of real madrid the president of real madrid is leading a campaign to dramatically alter the sport away from the traditions of the game and spain not exactly a a country that's new to this sport this is a tradition rich country real madrid is a tradition rich club and they want to completely change the game so i'm kind of i'm kind of tired of americans being the boogeyman when florentino Perez is saying out loud the way that he wants to change the game to increase the valuation of his club and that is to change the complete nature of the sport away from qualifying from champions league away from having promotion relegation guaranteeing revenues so that the value of his team can go up so he can so he can win the race to sign erling holland not manchester city that's what it's all about i like what you're doing here because i think it's a great point and people like gary neville who i agree with on a lot of things but not on this jihad he's gone on against american owners and i realize he has a specific issue with his former team, Man United, and the American owners on that team. But the fact of the matter is exactly what you're saying, which is that the threat to what Gary Neville views as European soccer is Florentino Perez, who's not American. And quit trying to score points against this kind of American monolith that you've put out there when there's another person who's Spanish who's causing more problems than you're actually acknowledging. So um, I totally agree with you on this one. I'm curious to see where it goes from here. Um, but I find it interesting, I guess, that Florentino Perez isn't backing down from the Super League. He seems to think this is still going to happen eventually. And, I, and there's actually quite a few people in the business I talk to who think something like the Super League is going to happen eventually. So... Um, how soon? We'll see. I, I, um, just, I just sort of wonder what the desire is now for Premier League clubs to participate in it. because And you, and you can't I, have a Super League without the Premier League. Right. And I hope, well, I mean, hope is a strong word, but I wonder if they sort of recognize their value to the whole operation and that the whole reason why Juventus, Real Madrid, Barcelona want to bring the Premier League into a bigger European competition is to catch up to the Premier League, that they've fallen so far behind the Premier League's ability to make money. Um, for me, the only reason why they would is if the television cash cow that they have starts to dry up, which has been floated, right? There's notions that the Premier League has sort of hit their ceiling in terms of partic particularly domestic revenue that they're going to make uh, from uh, from TV rights. So what is their next frontier in making even more money? Maybe they turn into a Super League. But uh, I, I do think that the Premier League has to recognize that they are the force that the other clubs and other big countries are trying to catch up to. And they should probably just hold on to that position and watch as La Liga gets that little bit weaker and Serie A gets that little bit weaker and the Bundesliga gets that little bit weaker. And really the Premier League becomes the number one competition in the world. The Super League is the Premier League. In many ways. And, and I, I think that's why we're seeing these non-Premier League clubs try to act. But um, yeah, it, it's fascinating to, to watch from my perspective. Um, a couple of things I want to get into in the U.S. The MLS playoff race is near the end at this point. And so we've seen a few things happen this weekend. LAFC has clinched the supporters' shield uh, with help from Philadelphia losing to Charlotte, surprisingly. And the Seattle Sounders are out of the playoffs. They will not be going into the postseason. They are the CONCACAF champions. Huge disappointment for Seattle after making the playoffs, what was it, 14 straight MLS seasons? They made basically every 
playoffs ever since they started. So that's big news. Um, and it gets back a little bit to our take on the playoffs and MLS in general, because 14 teams make the playoffs for most teams, even making the playoffs should not be the sign of a successful season. Right. I, I think there are a few, a, a few teams where I disagree on that in the sense that if Miami makes it, which they have a chance to do, I feel like that will be grounds for calling it a successful season, given all the handcuffs that were put on the team from their rules breaking. Um, I think Cincinnati, if they can make it to the postseason, would be viewed as a successful season after finishing dead last in the league for three straight years. But those are exceptions to the rule. Agreed. And I do think that there are teams in which you sort of go into the season with a sort of preseason expectation. I think Real Salt Lake might be another where I, I, I'm not sure that they were a fancy, even though they got pretty far in the Western Conference playoffs last year. Um, but the, the Seattle thing... It's just sort of wild how that got away from them, and you sort of kept waiting for them to turn it around, and they might have had probably an injury too many. I think Obed Vargas was probably the one that completely broke them. Their midfield sort of never really recovered, but it's just sort of wild that Seattle are the team that always had the reinforcements coming in the summer, that they can add to the team and make that charge forward, but they clearly threw it all into the Champions League. It's fascinating that clubs in MLS don't seem to be able to compete on those two fronts. So you can have a few teams that compete to get to the Open Cup final and can still maintain a successful league campaign. But there's something specific about the Champions League that doesn't allow teams to compete in multiple fronts in that way. Toronto, the year that they went to the final, really struggled in the league to eventually find their form. It seems like that competition is an energy sapper and you sort of never recover. But that, I think, is probably a little bit of an excuse for Seattle, given how poor they've been over the course of the season, to not even make the playoffs when a lot of teams right now in, in and around that playoff race are sort of begging to give it away. I think Minnesota have taken a point from their last six. Uh, they're, they're, it's there for the taking. Portland lost again today to give LAFC the supporter shield, and yet Seattle just were never able to find a run of form. If you win four games in a row in this league, it's that, that's a good enough of a run of form in order to get in towards those playoff places, and Seattle just never found it. On the supporter shield, it's interesting that LAFC... Is it weird to say that a team that won the supporter shield sort of did it in disappointing fashion? I know that that's <laughs> incredibly harsh, but like for me... Philadelphia Union are sort of the emotional supporter shield holders because of how they charged through the end of the season. They had a bad run at a bad time. LAFC won a few games, and they had built up and up of a margin for error. But I, I still sort of wonder about them coming into the MLS Cup playoffs because uh, they're still figuring things out from an attacking standpoint. They're still you know, trying to figure out their best combination of players. Gareth Bale, I think, is very much a bench player for them heading into the playoffs, which is kind of stunning. And they now have home field throughout the MLS Cup playoffs, but they're still a team that you have a, a few doubts about. And I'm not sure that if you look back on this season, based off what happened in the sen in kind of like the last third of it, that LAFC would be the team that you'd view as, all right, this is the defining team of the season. But it's it's remarkable what they've done. A second supporter shield. Have, have they been in the league for five years now? They win yeah. two supporter. That's it's a remarkable return. The ambitions of that club are amazing. They've lapped LA Galaxy by miles in terms of having the ownership of that town. And it's kind of insane what they've done in such a short period of time. And it is those very high standards that I sort of hold them up against and go, I don't know if this is exactly what I thought them winning the supporter shield would look like. Yeah, I, I think we've seen like, what is it, one Supporter Shield winner win the MLS Cup in the last decade or something close to that. So it's not like they're an obvious choice to get to the final, even though they've been the best team in the league this season. And that's just the nature of the MLS Cup playoffs and the system, the way it's designed. Um, so we'll see. Uh, playoffs are going to start soon here. We have one more game, one more match day on MLS Decision Day. Wanted to wrap up with another Shield winner. O.L. Reign wins the Shield in the NWSL, in part because Gotham got a point against Portland on the last day of this, uh, the regular season. O.L. Reign wins and gets in there, gets the Shield in the NWSL, which had a really 
tight race down the stretch. Yeah, and by the way, a lot of what happened with O.L. Reign uh, getting to this point is a remarkable second half of the season run from Megan Rapino, who scored again in their 3-0 win over Orlando Pride at the weekend that confirmed them as as winners of the NWSL Shield. And it's it's kind of funny. If you look at, or I think she didn't score, Rapino did in in uh, oil rains first 13 or 14 games and then there was internationals in there so she didn't really begin the run without with, with sort of like 10 games to go and then she's got on a tear and it's always fun for me to watch these u.s women's national team legends go on these remarkable runs with their clubs and once they sort of realize, all right, I'm going to flip the switch and we're going to try and win this league title and we're going to try and win a shield and O.L. Reign's going to try and go for it this year that all of a sudden she could score in every game. And it's just sort of a flipping of the switch and, and you know, who knows how much longer she's going to be playing uh, iClub or international level. Maybe the, the this ne- next year's World Cup is the last hurrah for Rapino, and so she's getting into form ahead of it. But it's incredible the run that she ran on, that she went on at the end of this season to get all rain to this point. They have a lot of other talent. You have to give uh, some credit to the Lyon hierarchy that has supplied this team with a ton of talent, including Jordan Haitema up top, uh, who scored again at the weekend as well. A really promising young player uh, for all rain and at international level as well. So uh, you know, again, as with MLS. Winning the regular season title is not always a guarantee, but uh, in NWSL, you'd be, it'd be hard-pressed to find a team that'd be better than O.L. Reign at the moment. Agreed on all of that. And the big game this week in the women's game, obviously, is going to be England-USA at a sold-out Wembley Stadium on Friday. I will be there. I'm very much looking forward to that, heading to London midweek. And it's a friendly, so, I mean, I guess the stakes aren't that high, but you feel like these are two of the teams that are World Cup contenders for next year and the u.s really has been looking for a chance to show against a top class opponent what it can still do alex morgan won't be available due to injury but the rest of the top u.s players will be there for this game so i'm I'm totally fired up to be in that atmosphere on friday yeah and I, i just looked up the odds and i know it's from an english bookmaker and so you have to take that with a grain of salt but these are the two favorites to win the tournament usa and england uh, playing against each other. And then in November, the USA and Germany will play each other a couple times. Germany are fourth favorites to win the Women's World Cup. So it's really cool that the U.S. are, are, are seeking out this higher level of competition. And not to not to be negative going into it, but I do wonder if maybe you have a similar number of questions about uh, the U.S. women's national team coming out of these games as maybe you did about the U.S. men's team uh, in this last window because... The U.S. against higher levels of competition have not been particularly strong in the last year and change. They did win uh, the CONCACAF Women's Championship against Canada, but in the Olympics and when they've gone against higher level teams under Vlako Andonovsky, they haven't really put in tremendous performances. So I think there's a real amount of pressure on the U.S. to perform well in this window and again in November uh, when they take on Germany on a couple of occasions to sort of recapture um, that good feeling and that feeling as favorites of the U.S. You, a lot of teams in Europe right now are sort of hyping themselves up to not be afraid of the U.S. in big games and overcome the mentality monster that I've heard described uh, the U.S. women's national team as. And so I think it's sort of a measuring challenge for England. It's a measuring challenge for Germany uh, to really have a go at this U.S. team. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Chris, thank you, as always. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.